Hey, last Sunday, Easter Sunday, we kicked off a new series here at the Bridge Fellowship, a new teaching series, and it's called Dangerous. And I know when you think of the word dangerous, lots of different things come into your mind, and most of them don't have anything to do with God, church, or Christianity. But what we hope over the next few weeks as we finish this series is that when you think of the word dangerous, it will mean something completely new to you, something that that you never thought about before. Specifically, it will mean something Uh, in your life, in your relationship with Jesus Christ. And so we're going to continue that today. And one of the things we've been doing when we started this series and decided to do this dangerous thing, we thought it would be fun to each week film one of our team members here at the bridge doing something dangerous. And if you were here last week, uh, you might know that um, I uh, actually, I almost said I jumped out of an airplane, but that's not true. I was pushed out of an airplane. Uh, uh, from 18,000 feet, but I lived, and here I am, and we've destroyed that video, never to be seen again. Uh, That's not true. It's all over social media, Uh, so, you know, too late now. But anyway, uh, each week we're filming one of our team members doing something dangerous, and this week we asked uh, Pastor Brandon uh, if he would go and participate in an activity that some people think is fun, but most sane people consider extremely dangerous. So take a look at this. Okay, so where are we off to, Brandon? Right now, we are on our way to (laughs) Callahan, Colorado, and I am going to attempt to ride a bull. How excited are you for this? (laughs) I wasn't nervous till about 30 minutes ago, and uh, I'm a little nervous. So I've got some cowboy experts coming along to give me some tips and mainly just make fun of me, I think. So we'll give it a shot. So do you have a lot of experience um, with bull riding? I have zero experience (laughs) with anything close to bulls. I've been on a horse like twice (laughs) on a trail ride maybe. Uh, And I don't think this is going to be a similar experience. adrenaline instead of nerves so so close (laughs) with my father in a cast I had no plans so we're here yeah we're about to go check out the bulls and I'll get to figure out what I'm riding in a second My new best friend. Right here. Oh my this guy. goodness. This guy right here. <laughs> Damn your wife, I'd be your mistress just to have you around. But I was late for this. Late for that. Any other words before you get ready to go? <laughs> no, no words. Let's do this.
Yeah, there's nothing like it, that's for sure. That's crazy. There's so much power in that thing. Oh my gosh. Yeah, I was just ready to get off after a certain point. I was like, let's just clear the thing and, and get going. So, so the video could end there, but the series is called Dangerous. So we thought we'd take it up a notch. I asked the guys at the arena if they had something a little more dangerous and this is what we ended up with. So I did it. I rode the bull. Definitely dangerous. Definitely fun. Uh, not sure if I'm gonna do it again, but I did it. And the real question is, are you dangerous? All right. Yeah. I'm not in the business of stealing people's thunder or anything, but I'd like to point out that a few years ago I rode a bull. And I did not wear one of those little sissy helmets that Brandon was wearing. Just want y'all to know that. But uh, anyway, <laughs> I'm, I'm glad they did the second bull because I was really going to let him have it because that first bull actually looked cute. So anyway, no, Brandon, thank you for doing that. Uh, it could have gone really bad and we don't carry uh, workers comp. So I'm glad that you're okay. Uh, anyway. So back to this series. We got the idea for this dangerous thing from a pastor uh, named Louis Giglio who preached a message about 15 years ago on the topic of DEFCON. Now, if you, you're not familiar with this, our, our nation's government, our military, has a, a security level system called DEFCON or Defense readiness condition where we monitor threats coming in toward, toward the United States. And, and they go like this, just to kind of give you a quick review, they go in reverse order. So DEFCON level five is peacetime. It's when there are no threats right now, we're not at war, there's, there's nobody trying to, to attack us as a nation and then you work your way down. DEFCON four is increased intelligence gathering and security measures. This level, DEFCON 4, we've stayed at off and on for the last several years as we've been in this war on terror. Then there's DEFCON level 3, uh, where our armed forces uh, readiness has increased above normal levels and our Air Force can mobilize in just 15 minutes. That level, DEFCON 3, has only happened four times in our nation's history. And then DEFCON 2 is high readiness. Our armed forces can deploy in less than six hours. 
Uh, DEFCON 2 has only happened twice in our nation's history, during the Cuban Missile Crisis in the 1960s and then during the, the very first Gulf War during Operation Desert Storm. Twice has our nation gone to DEFCON Level uh, 2. And then finally there's DEFCON Level 1, and that is maximum readiness. Our forces are ready for combat. This level means that nuclear war is imminent or likely. And the reason that our nation's military uses this is so that they can monitor the threats that are out there. If there was no threat to America whatsoever, we wouldn't have a need for a system like DEFCON. And this is what our nation uses. But when Giglio originally preached this sermon several years ago, he proposed hypothetically this. What if Satan had a DEFCON system? What if he had a way to measure threats against his plans here on earth? And last week, if you weren't here on Easter, we took just a few minutes to, to answer the question, what is Satan's plan? What is he trying to do? And, and just to sum it up real briefly for you this morning, he's a liar. He, want, he wants you to believe things that aren't really true. He's a discourager. He wants to destroy you. He's not your friend. And, and so what if, hypothetically, and we don't know if Satan has something like this, but we don't know that he doesn't either, but what if he had a system in his kingdom of hell that, that monitored threats from you and me? Human beings that get God on a level that makes them a threat to what Satan's trying to do here on earth. What, what would that look like? In other words, are you dangerous? That's the question that Giglio asked, and we're asking again for these four weeks, is when Satan wakes up in the morning, and we don't know if he sleeps or not, but just go with it, when he wakes up and thinks about you, is he worried? Are you making such a difference in your world that Satan is paying attention to you? Now, we know that Satan wants to destroy all people. Because we are creations by God, and he hates God, and he can't get to God, so he targets us. We know that. But are you a threat to what he's trying to do? And so, for the sake of this series we're in, we've created these hypothetical DEFCON levels for Satan, and I want to walk you through them again. Uh, We only have three, and they go like this. DEFCON 3 is, Satan is not remotely worried about you because you are no threat to his plans to discourage and destroy you're just kind of going through the motions. You're existing. You're living here on earth. But there's not a real connection to Jesus Christ. There's nothing in you in your life that's starting to look more and more like Jesus. And you're certainly not a threat to the plans of Satan. That's DEFCON 3. DEFCON 2 looks like this. You've grown in your walk with Christ to the point that now occasionally you show up on his radar as a blip on the screen. I think maybe a lot of people fall into this category. You, you believe. You believe in who Jesus said he was and what he did. And, and from time to time, you start getting closer to him and, and you start allowing your life to be controlled by the biblical truths that Jesus taught while he walked around here on earth. And occasionally, you start to get it. You start making a difference in your world. And, and when that happens, boop. You start showing up on Satan's radar where he has to pay attention. Maybe not all the time, but at least some of the time. 
And then the highest level, hypothetically, uh, of threat to Satan's kingdom looks like this. DEFCON 1 says, Satan and his legion of demons are on highest alert because you are making a daily eternal impact on the lives of others for the glory of God. When we decided to move here to Colorado to start this church, I had a pastor friend of mine say, are, are you sure this is what God is calling you to do? Because you need to know if you go into an area and start a brand new church, you're declaring war. And, and don't think for a second that the enemy, Satan, is going to sit by and let this church grow without any adversity or without any attacks. And man, was that guy right. I mean, if you know our story over the last few years since we moved here to Colorado, it's just been one battle after another, after another. And I'm not patting myself on the back. Sometimes I wish, what was I, you know, I think to myself, what was I thinking? Why don't we just stay in our comfortable lives and, and not start a fight with, with the enemy? But you guys know what that's like. Maybe you didn't start a church, but you started a family. Or you started walking with Christ. Or you started a new career. Or you started volunteering somewhere where you're making a difference in, in other people's lives. Satan's going to attack the same way in your life. And so throughout this series, what we want to do is take a look at Scripture and, and look at the lives of people in the Bible who through their faith and their actions prove themselves to be dangerous in the eyes of the enemy. And we kicked things off last week on Easter looking at the most dangerous person, obviously, to Satan. And that, of course, is Jesus Christ. And, and here are a few things that we said last week about Jesus. Number one, Jesus is dangerous because he came to defeat death and give life. We could stop right there, and that kind of sums up the whole Jesus story, the Christian story. He came to defeat death, and included in that is the enemy, Satan. But he also came to give life. And, and I don't know why you're here today, but the odds are that you're here today because you believe in that statement or you're looking for something. Or maybe you came in here today discouraged, frustrated. And I want you to know, when, when we say Jesus was dangerous because he came to give new life, that's for you. He came to do that for you. And then we broke it down a little bit more and got more specific and we said this, Jesus came to help those who can't help themselves. And if you're here last week, we talked about this guy named Zacchaeus who was kind of considered the scum of the earth in his day. And he was stealing from his own people and taking some for himself and then giving the rest to the Romans. And he was a really low-level dude. He was not a good guy. He couldn't help himself. I mean, he, was, he was a bad guy, but Jesus came to help those who can't help themselves. And we also said this, Jesus came to give life, life to those who are ready to give up on life. And, and again, I, I don't know everybody in here this morning, but I wonder if somebody came here today and that's the point you're at. You're asking yourself, is this even worth it anymore? I mean, I, I try so hard. I'm trying to be a good parent. I try to be a good person, but I feel like I'm losing ground. And if you're anything like me, sometimes this world can get the best of you to a point where you just feel like giving up. Jesus came for that. He came for you. He came in those moments when you feel like giving up on life. 
And then finally, the best thing we said all week last week on Easter is this. Jesus is dangerous to the kingdom of hell and Satan because he didn't stay dead. And at the end of my message, I made this statement. If Jesus Christ had come to earth and lived a perfect life and died on the cross for our sins and then just did what dead people do, which is stay dead, we're not here today. We're not here worshiping God because there is no movement called Christianity. There is no opportunity for salvation in our lives because just dying on the cross wasn't enough. He had to raise from the dead to defeat death, and he did it. And that's why it's worth being here this morning, worshiping him. And so we, we, we kind of we covered Jesus in week one, and that brings us to week two. And today we're going to look at probably one of the most famous stories in all of the Bible. And so if you have your Bible with you or your smartphone, uh, iPad, whatever, if you want to turn to 1 Samuel uh, chapter 17. 1 Samuel chapter 17, that's where we're going to be at most of the day. And what we're going to do is zoom in on the life of a guy who, although he was far from perfect, and we don't have time today to go into the whole story, but I'm just telling you, this guy we're talking about today did not have his act all together. And that's why I love this story, because it proves that you can be dangerous and still be messed up and imperfect. And all of us need to know that today. We're talking about David specifically the story of David and Goliath. And so if you spent any time in church as a child or vacation Bible school or whatever, you've probably heard different versions of this story. But before we dive in, let me say this real quick. I I think for many of us, most of our lives, we have been taught uh, that the moral of the story of David and Goliath, the whole story, the moral goes like this. If you have enough courage and have God on your side, you can overcome any giant in your life. Like when we think of the story of David and Goliath, that's kind of what we think. Hey, if, if you muster up enough courage and you don't run and, and you trust Jesus, then no matter what happens, you'll always win. And while I don't think that's a totally bad statement, I don't think it's totally accurate either. Because the truth is, we don't always win. Even people who've handed over the keys of their life to Jesus and believe that Jesus was who he said he was and did what he said he was going to do and that he raised again and they follow Jesus and they read the Bible and they go to church and they're in life groups and they're doing everything they're supposed to, sometimes we still lose. And if you're not careful and you read a story like David and Goliath and, and, and you get the moral of the story that, hey, if God's on your side, you always win, and then you hit something in life like you're diagnosed with cancer or someone you love is diagnosed with cancer and God doesn't heal them. Or you, you work as hard as you can at your job and you try to do your job with integrity, but you still end up losing your job for, for terrible reasons. Or you you try as hard as you can to make your marriage work and build a safe family environment for your kids, but either time after time you blow it or the whole marriage blows up. If you go with that first moral of the story of David and Goliath that if God's on your side, you always win, then when something like that happens, you're you're left to to come to the conclusion that either there's something wrong with God, either he, he can't do what he said he could do, which is take care of you, or he doesn't want to, he doesn't love you enough, or you come to the conclusion that there's something wrong with you and that you've done something so wrong that God's turned his back on you and neither of those could be farther from the truth. That's not the God we serve. 
And so today I want to look at this story from a little bit different angle. And we're just going to start reading in 1 Samuel 17, and we'll kind of break it down as we go. There's a lot to be learned here. So let's start reading 1 Samuel chapter 17, verse 1. The Bible says this. Now the Philistines mustered their army for battle. And Saul countered by gathering his Israelite troops near the valley of Elah. So the Philistines and Israelites faced each other on opposite hills with the valley in between them. Then Goliath, a Philistine champion from Goth, came out of the Philistine ranks to face uh, the forces of Israel. And the Bible says he was over nine feet tall. And actually, in in the original Hebrew text, uh, the measurement back then actually is closer to ten and a half feet tall. Now, I don't know whether you believe that. In fact, some of the Dead Sea Scrolls use measurements that say he was closer to seven and a half feet tall. But as an average human being, if you see a guy, what, like once he's seven and a half feet tall, who cares, right? He's a really big human being. And so, so this, this giant called Goliath was a big, formidable force that was scary to people. Let's jump down to verse 8 and keep reading. Goliath stood and shouted a taunt across to the Israelites. And he said, why are you all coming out to fight? I am a Philistine champion, but you are only servants of Saul. And Saul was the king at the time, and you've probably heard that. And it's not the same as the New Testament Saul who became Paul. This is the king Saul before David became king. And and we'll get to all that here in a minute. But he says, you are only servants of Saul. And and then he makes a, a threat. He says, choose one man to come down here and fight me. If he kills me, then me and all the Philistines will be your slaves. But if I kill him, you will be our slaves. I defy the armies of Israel today. Send me a man who will fight me. And look at this last verse, verse 11. When Saul and the Israelites heard this, they were terrified and deeply shaken. And so you kind of get the scene, there, there's a big valley in between, and there's a hill over here, and a hill over here, and on this hill you have the Philistines and Goliath, and over here you have the Israelites, or Saul's army, and, and Goliath is over here, and he comes out front, and he starts taunting the Israelite army, and basically saying, you got nothing? There's nobody over there that wants any of this right here. And according to the Bible, I'm not making this up, but according to 1 Samuel 17, he was right. Because all of Saul's guys are going, not me, you go. And you know how that is, like when you're daring your friends, you're pushing them, and they're like, don't push me, you go. You know, if you want, you know, and and they're having this moment where they're, here's what everybody knew. Nobody wanted a piece of Goliath. Now let's pause for a minute. David, you're like, where is he in the picture? He's coming, trust me. But just as a little background, what you need to know is that David was the son of this guy named Jesse, who is good friends with this prophet Samuel who's writing this story. And that's how we get the story of David and Goliath. Jesse actually had eight sons. And, and it, the Bible says that, um, that David was the youngest of those sons, and three of his eight sons were in Saul's army. So they were up on the hill that day watching Goliath taunt the army. And just by reading between the lines, we can understand that none of Jesse's sons stepped up to fight Goliath either. They were some of the guys going, I'm not going out there, you go out there. I'm not going out there, I like this pretty face. Kind of, you know, that, like they were a part of that. Jesse's sons were, were deeply terrified of Goliath. Now David, 
who, as we said, was much younger, was kind of a, a courier or an errand boy for Saul's army. He, he lived at home taking care of sheep for his father, Jesse, but he also had a side job where he would take supplies back and forth to the army of Israel while they were in battle up on the hill. So he was up there. He knew what was going on. And, and so what, what we need to know is happening is for 40 days, the Bible says, 40 days, every day, Goliath comes out and he taunts Israel's army. Again and again and again. For 40 days, he says, anybody? Got anybody who wants to fight me? And for 40 days, no one from Saul's army would go out and fight because they knew the reputation that Goliath had of being a killing machine. Nobody. And here's something I want you to remember today. When you think of Israel's army being afraid of, of the giant called Goliath, look at this. Being dangerous does mean moving forward in spite of our fears. And so maybe we're not standing on a hill fighting a 10-foot tall giant from Bible times, but a lot of times we're standing on a hill and we're facing our own giants. And the question is, are you going to move forward in spite of the fear and uncertainty that you face? Who knows what's happened in your life, but there are things that have made you afraid and and maybe they've happened to you before and you're going, I know how this turns out. I'm not falling for that again. I'm not going to put myself in the same situation as I did time and time before because it always turns out badly. And so you allow fear and uncertainty to trap you up on the hill instead of walking out into the middle of the valley to fight. Being dangerous means moving forward in spite of your fear. Now, here's a fact. If you came here for nothing else today, you're welcome. This is free. Dangerous things are scary. It's scary to do dangerous things. Just ask Brandon what it felt like when that, you know, thousands of pound hunk of beef was between his legs. And he said, and I'm, I wasn't joking. I've done this. And I'm telling you, when you climb over that rail and you sit on that bull I can't really say in church what you think inside your heart but you you're like this is a strong animal and it could kill me right or you could go watch my video if you're here last week it was so funny listening to you guys watch the video when they opened the door of the plane at 18,000 feet and the camera looks down almost every person in the building goes whoa (laughs) you know dangerous things are scary So don't forget this today. One of the most dangerous things that we can do as followers of Jesus is obey him even when it doesn't make sense. And that goes for everybody. Maybe coming to church today didn't make sense to you. But you're here. And that's dangerous. Just the fact that you're sitting here today and hearing the truth of God's word, that's dangerous to Satan. So good job on you for just coming today one of the things that this tells us and really tells all of us is that we we all have an opportunity to be dangerous you know how because all of us have opportunities to follow God when it doesn't make sense with our lives with our careers with our family with our finances with our children with our relationships sometimes you look at what God's asking you to do and go this just makes no sense whatsoever and I would just go back to last week's message and say 
on paper, it doesn't make sense if I'm Jesus and I'm living in the glory and comfort and luxury of heaven. It just doesn't make sense to come down here and die in the place of people that I know after I die for them, they're going to turn their backs on me anyway. It just doesn't make sense. But aren't you glad that Jesus obeyed even when it doesn't, didn't make sense? So watch what David does in the rest of this story. And remember, all just to, to remind us, all of the soldiers in, in Saul's army, these are big, powerful soldiers. They're running in the opposite direction. And here's what happens. Pick it up in verse 32. The Bible says this, and these are David's words. Young David, he says, don't worry about this Philistine. David told Saul, I'll go fight him. Now, time out. Everybody had that little brother right? In, in life where, oh, don't worry, I'll go do it, you know? And you're like, you're an idiot. Go sit down, right? And I happen to be that big brother. I didn't really have a risk filter as a kid. And I can remember my big brother and his friends always just kind of shoving my forehead back and going, go away. This is not for you. This is kind of the moment that's happening right now. David has every ounce of courage necessary to go and fight, but those around him are saying, man, you don't even know what you're getting into. Go away. But we pick it up. Saul says, don't be ridiculous. There's no way you can fight this Philistine and possibly win. You're only a boy, and this guy has been a man of war since his youth. 34. But David persisted. I've been taking care of my father's sheep and goats, he said. When a lion or a bear comes to steal a lamb from the flock, I go after it with a club and rescue the lamb from its mouth. Can we just call another time out and just let that picture settle for a minute? Because a lot of pictures of little bitty David fighting Goliath are this frail, tiny little boy, you know, that is pale skin and puny and all that kind of stuff. But when I read this, I'm thinking like he chased down the lion or the bear and took the lamb out of its mouth that's not puny or wimpy, last time I checked, right? Most of us, there's hard wiring within us. If we see bear or lion, it says run the other way, not toward the animal, like you run the opposite direction, and that's not what, what David's doing. Pick it up. He says, I, I have done this both to lions and bears, verse 36, and I'll do this to the pagan Philistine too. Now he's just talking trash, Right? He says, for he has defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who rescued me from the claws of the lion and the bear will rescue me from this Philistine. Saul finally consented. And this is the moment everything changes. All right, go ahead. May the Lord be with you. And, and it sounds sweet that he's saying that, but I think it's like, you're dead meat. May God be with you. You know, kind of, you know, whatever. So, so then verse 38 says, then Saul gave David his own armor. Saul... <laughs> Notice, Saul's not putting on his armor and going to fight for his army. He's putting it on the little kid, David. And, and here's what happens. He puts his armor, a bronze helmet and a coat of mail. And David put it on, strapped the sword over it, took a step or two to see what it was like, for he had never worn such things before. And David said, I can't go in these. I'm not used to them. So David took them off again. He picked up five smooth stones from a stream and put them into his shepherd's bag. Then armed with only with his shepherd's staff and a sling, he started across the valley to the Philistine. Now Goliath, verse 44, walked out toward David with his shield bearer ahead of him, sneering in contempt at this ruddy-faced boy. Verse 43, I am a dog, 
and he doesn't mean like a Yorkie here, okay? Think like possessed pit bull kind of dog. Like he's calling himself, I'm an animal and I'm trying to eat little things like you. He roared at David. He says, that you come at me with a stick? You're, you're coming with a little, little stick in your hand and he cursed David by the names of his gods. He says, come over here and I'll give your flesh to the birds and the wild animals. I love this part right here, verse 45. David replied to the Philistine, You come to me with sword, spear, and javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of heaven's armies and the God of armies of Israel, whom you defied. Here it is. Today the Lord will conquer you, and I will kill you and cut off your head. I didn't make that part up. Then I will give the dead bodies of your men to the birds and the wild animals, and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. Now, when David says all this stuff to Goliath, like, not only are you not going to feed me to all the animals, I'm actually going to cut your head off today, and I'm going to feed the bodies of all your an- army to the wild animals. You know that, that Saul's army, who's up on the hill watching all this, they're up there going, no, he didn't. No, he did not say that. What is he thinking? You know, he, like, this kid's nuts. What is he doing? Is he going to get destroyed, right? It's a crazy story, isn't it? Like when you think of that, I've, I've always thought, I wish somebody from Hollywood, and I know this is about to offend some of you today, but I'm not a huge fan of Christian movies. I think the, the meaning of Christian movies is great. I think the acting is horrible. And, and I, I wish that Hollywood would make a real movie about David and Goliath because I'd go see it over and over again. And if you know me, I'm not a real movie guy, but I would go watch this. It's a crazy story and it would make great film. But here's where I think we lose the main point of this story sometimes. We get so excited about the little guy versus the giant and, and we miss the main point. So but before we go any further, I want to clear up some misconceptions that we might have about the story of David Goliath today. Number one, David wasn't dangerous because he was small and Goliath was big. That's not what we're trying to teach here. In fact, Look at 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 18, and it says this. Remember, this is the chapter before we've been reading. So this is before Goliath happens. Verse 18 says this. One of the servants said to Saul, one of Jesse's sons from Bethlehem, he's talking about David, is a talented harp player. Not only that, he is a brave warrior, a man of war, and has good judgment. He is also fine looking, uh, a fine-looking young man, and the Lord is with him. Listen, David wasn't puny. He was a warrior. And, and, and he was, I mean, he chased after bears and lions for heaven's sakes, right? He wasn't this, this wimpy little helpless guy. And, and the reason he was dangerous is because he was small and he went out and fought a big giant. Can I tell you this? Compared to your enemy, singular, Satan, only one enemy, compared to your enemy, we're all small. We are no match for him. And so that's not what we're teaching today. It's not some epiphany like, oh my gosh, the smaller I am and the bigger my giant is, the better I am and the more dangerous I am. Wrong. All of the threats that come at you daily, whether they're emotional or relational or physical, they're all too big for you. You are no match for Satan. You remember what I said last week on Easter? On your own, you are no danger to Satan whatsoever. It's only, only when Christ lives in you that you become dangerous. You are no match for Satan. 
Second thing I want us to clear up, David wasn't dangerous because he was brave and the rest of Saul's armies were cowards. Like, I think I've even been guilty of teaching this when I was a youth pastor and teaching high school students. I kind of would, you know, like focus in on the fact that everybody else was afraid and, and David wasn't and that's why he was dangerous. Listen, as David walked down that hill, I know he was talking a lot of smack, but if you're walking toward a 10-foot giant, I promise you he was afraid. Now, we don't see it written in Scripture, and, and we, don't, we weren't there to know what he said that day, but I guarantee you his heart was beating really fast as he walked toward Goliath because just like all the other soldiers in the army, David knew the re- reputation that Goliath had. He was a killing machine. He knew. And yeah, he was afraid, but he didn't let his fear keep him from doing what he felt like God was calling him to do. And let me make this point. At the same time that the focus wasn't on the fact that all of Saul's army were cowards, let me say this. Being a coward or afraid or terrified or, as we just read, deeply shaken, it doesn't mean that God is done with you or has given up on you. Because those adjectives, coward, afraid, terrified, uncertain, deeply shaken, I'm pretty sure that describes everybody in this room at one point or another. And what I want you to know today is being afraid doesn't disqualify you. It actually qualifies you to follow Christ. It doesn't mean that God is done with you or has given up on you. We say this all the time around here at the bridge. We didn't make it up, but we love this statement. God uses broken and messy people because broken and messy people are all he has to choose from. That includes me and you. And so the good news, like kind of the thing that you can rest on today and just relax is this. God's not looking for you to be this polished, armor-filled soldier that's not afraid of anything. He just wants your obedience in spite of your fear. He just wants you to trust him in spite of the messiness and brokenness that is your life. And, and listen, if you're sitting here today going, man, I don't want people to know I'm messy and broken. One of the th- reasons I think people love this church is because anybody who gets up behind this stand, there's a rule. You let everybody else know I'm messy and broken too. And that's the truth. I don't stand up here today as someone who has figured it out. I struggle I I battle depression, anxiety. I I have some of the same fears and battles that you have. Some of mine are more ridiculous than yours. And I'm telling you that to say, if God can use me, he can certainly use you. Your fear or, or your brokenness doesn't disqualify you. In fact, our brokenness is the very reason that grace exists and that's what we preach around here by the way let me let me just call time out here i I don't know why i'm saying this but i I think it'll go did you guys ever do dangerous stuff as a kid like like stuff that you did as a kid and now you think about it as an adult and you just shake your head and go oh my word what was i thinking right let me let me give an example i I grew up with an older brother and he had a bunch of older friends and that's who i usually hung out with in our neighborhood and i can remember as like 10 11 year olds we thought it was fun, like it was a a normal summertime activity to climb. We had a big oak tree in our backyard, and we would climb up in the oak tree, jump over onto the roof of our house, you know, 10 feet off the ground or whatever, and we would take turns running as fast as we could 
off of the roof of the house and seeing who could jump the farthest out into the yard off of the roof of the house. In other words, like self-destruction. Like, we're like, I wonder what bones I can break today, right? I think I've told this before that we actually would catch frogs in the ditch beside our house and we would tie bottle rockets to these frogs and climb up on the roof of the house and we would set the bottle rocket off to see how far the frogs would fly. And my favorite, and and kids in here today, kids, please don't do what Pastor Steve's about to tell you he did, okay? Like, I'm telling you in front of your parents, don't do this. But we had some railroad tracks beside our house. And as young teenagers, middle school, we would literally take turns playing chickens with trains. We would lay on the track with our back, like the train would be coming that way, and we would feel the train vibrating on the tracks. And the game was, who can wait till the very last minute to roll off the tracks before the train hits you? Did you guys do stuff like that? Most of you are going, nope, never did that. By the way, on that note, I know some of you come to the bridge sometimes because what I'm about to say is, so what did make David dangerous, right? And some of you are going, you know, Ferris, if you just get to the point on Sunday, we'd all get out of here a lot sooner. But if I did that, you would miss so many wonderful stories from my childhood that would allow you, when you look in the mirror in the mornings, to say to yourself, at least I'm not as messed up as Pastor Steve, right? <laughs> so what did make dangerous, uh, David dangerous to the enemy we call Satan? And here it is. Number one, David was dangerous to the enemy because he was faithful in preparing himself before the battle. You see, the, the fancy part of the story is David and Goliath in, in the valley going at it with the slingshot and the rocks and all that. That's what we remember. Nobody remembers the preparation that happened in David's life before that battle where he was faithful, watching his father's sheep, but not only watching them, protecting them from things like lions and, and, and bears. Look again in verse 34. It says, I've been taking care of my father's sheep and goats. When a lion or bear comes to steal a lamb from the flock... I go after it with a club and rescue the lamb from its mouth. If the animal turns on me, I catch it by the jaw and club it to death. I've done this with both lions and bears, and I'll do it to this pagan uh, pagan Philistine too, for he has defied the armies of the living God. Look, the same God who rescued me from the claws of the lion and the bear is going to rescue me today. There's no way that David could have that kind of confidence in the heat of battle against a 10-foot giant if he didn't learn that by being faithful before he ever got to that battle. It's worth noting that watching sheep and goats was not the most noble job in the world. There are a lot of people like David and maybe like you today who go to a job and you're thinking, what am I doing? Man, I could be doing something so much better than this. Like, why am I stuck doing this? And David could have done that. He could have played the, is this worth it? Is all this I'm going through, is it it even worth my time? Is it even making a difference at all? And it was making a difference because it was preparing him when no one else could see. It was preparing him 
for the real battle to come. And so the next logical question is, well, what's our preparation then? Because we're not watching sheep and goats, and we're not chasing lions and bears, or if you are, you should see a counselor. But what, what's our preparation look like? Because, look, for most of us in this room, and I'm not saying everybody, so please don't email me, but for most of us in here today, we haven't even faced the real battle yet. I, I know life's hard, but it's going to get harder for a lot of people in this room. And there are things that you've faced already in your life that you're thinking, man, that was hard. Can't believe I had to go through that. And that's not even the real battle. I can't believe those people treated me like that. Or I can't believe God allowed this to happen to me. And all that is, is preparation. But there's other preparation we can make, like spending time alone with God. Getting to know Him. You can't trust those that you don't know. So the more that you intentionally spend time, we call it chair time around here at the bridge. You find that chair, you spend 15 minutes a day reading God's Word, talking to Him, and just getting to know Him. And then when the battle comes, you'll trust Him more because you know Him more. That's preparation. Sometimes, I don't know about you, but me, I start feeling sorry for myself during the preparation stage. I start thinking, man, why am I the only one that has to deal with this? Why, why am I the, the one? Why, why did God choose me to walk through this right now? Everybody else's life, especially on social media, looks so good and so together, and they don't have any of these problems. Why me? And the answer is because God's preparing you. He's preparing you for the real battle that's still yet to come. Look at this. Whatever you are facing today, and I don't, I don't know what it is, and I don't pretend to know what it is. But whatever it is that you're going through, God is using that moment to prepare you for something even bigger down the road. And can I add this real quick? Maybe it's not even something bad. Maybe the difficult preparation season that God is asking you to walk through is to prepare you for something good. But nonetheless, whatever you're going through, God's using it. He's using it to make you ready for what's still to come. Then David was also dangerous because he completely trusted God in the midst of the battle. These last two kind of go together, so I'm going to go through them real quick. But you need to know, David was dangerous to the enemy we call Satan because he completely trusted God in the midst of the battle. And I know when you read those words on the screen, you're going, that one's hard. It's hard to trust in the midst of the battle. It's hard to trust when I can't even catch my breath and I don't know if I'm ever going to smile again. It's hard. David trusted God even in those difficult moments. Look at verse 45 again. He replied to the Philistine Goliath. He said, you come to me with sword, spear, and javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of heaven's armies and the God of the armies of Israel. That, that's who I'm coming with because I trust in my God. And this is scary right now. And part of me, I'm just a little kid who usually watches sheep. I can't believe I'm standing in this valley right now about to take on this giant. But here's what I know. I trust God. And, and one of the morals of this story is not that David was small and the giant was big or David was brave and the rest of the army was, was cowards, were cowards. The moral is when you're in the middle of the valley, do you trust God? Because he's there. God doesn't stand up on the hill with the rest of the army and go, come on, you can do this. He walks down in the dark valleys with us. He's there. 
He's there. The, the second part of this goes like this. David was dangerous because he knew the battle was God's and not his own. Verse 46 says this. Today the Lord will conquer you and I will kill you and cut off your head and I will give the dead bodies of all your men to the birds and wild animals and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. The most important part of that verse is the first part. Today the Lord will conquer you. Listen this morning. Whatever it is you're going up against right now, it's not your fight. And actually... When the enemy perceives you as a threat and comes after you, he's not even coming after you. You just represent what he really wants, which is God. And he knows he can't defeat God, so he comes to destroy you and I. Or he comes to discourage us. Or make us afraid. And I just want to encourage you today. This is not your fight. Y'all ever notice when it's somebody else's fight, how your confidence goes up? Now, and we don't have time to go on to this, but ask me later or just pray for me is probably better. Like when I was a kid, I got in a lot of fights. I, I just wanted to prove myself and I got in a lot of fights. But probably everybody in here in middle school or high school, you witnessed a fight at school, right? You saw a fight. And isn't it interesting when you know you're not the one fighting, how cocky you can be? You know, these two guys are going at it and you're like, you're not going to let him say that to you, are you? Or, oh, no, he didn't. You better get it. And you're like, we're all cocky and we're confident. You know why? We know it's not our fight. But it seems like we fall into this trap when it's our life and our future and what's going on around us in this world right now. And it gets scary, frustrating, and we start thinking like this, and it's not the right way to think. We start thinking, I gotta get myself out of this. Or I gotta muster enough strength to get past this. And it was never meant for you to be strong in the first place. Because remember what I said on your own, you're no match, you're a sitting duck. Only when Christ lives in you do you become a dangerous threat to our enemy. So real quick, as we close today, one of the things that I think, anyway, frustrates a lot of Christians is trying to figure out, is the giant from the enemy because he thinks I'm a threat? Or is the giant from God and it's a test? That's a fair question. And it's one a lot of us think because when certain things happen to us at our job or with our relationships or in our family or God takes away somebody that we love or our finances go in the toilet or whatever it is, it's really easy for us to think sometimes, well, clearly that's not from God. That must be the enemy. He must be really mad at me and he's trying to destroy my life. And I wish I could tell you that's true today, but the Bible teaches us different. God will test you. And so look at this truth today. Even when God tests us, He is not evaluating our own strength or courage. He's examining our level of trust in Him regardless of the circumstances. I'll leave that one up for a minute because that's worth taking a picture of. If you're visiting here today, we taking notes is hard, man. Just take a picture of it and have it on your phone. That one, that one's worth taking a picture of because sometimes we blame way too much stuff on the devil when God is working in your life and he's not trying to see what you're made of he's asking the question do you trust me 
Do you trust me when it's dark? Do you trust me when there seems no light at the end of the tunnel and no way out? Do you trust me? So let's go all the way back to our original question in this series. Are you dangerous? Like, what, what's Satan thinking of you today? Is he worried? Maybe we should ask it this way. Number one, are, are you allowing God to prepare you for what's coming next? Because that's a good sign that you're getting dangerous. Are you being faithful in this moment right now when it doesn't make any sense so that God can prepare you for what's coming next that could be much bigger in a good way or a scary way? Are you being faithful right now? Are you allowing God to prepare you? Because if you are, you're dangerous. Second, are you, are you fighting like this battle is yours to win or God's? And then finally... We ask this around here all the time. And if you're new, there's no hidden agenda here. We mean it just like it's written. Do you really trust that God's way is better in your life? Because I I do know some of your stories. And there are people in this room today that are working through really hard stuff in their lives. I know. I'm watching you. And when you get in those moments and it gets hard... It's in those moments where we start questioning, is this really the best way? Like God says, trust me, my way is better, but I don't know if I trust this. I feel like God's just out to get me right now. And this is a question you have to answer on your own. I can't, your pastor can't answer it for you. Your spouse can't answer it for you. Your parents can't answer it for you. You got to answer this one on your own. Do you really trust that God's way is better even when it's making no sense whatsoever in your life? Because really, that's what it all boils down to. And when you get to a point in your life, and I'm not saying I have, but when we get to a point in our lives when we can answer yes to that question, you'll know you're dangerous. And the enemy will too. Let's pray. God, thank you that what makes us a a danger to the enemy is not anything that's within us to begin with, like courage or strength. It's only when you live in us. Because we've recognized that you and you alone are the only way to hope and peace, purpose and joy in this world. That you're the only way to eternal life. And we hand over the keys of you, of our lives to you, and we say, I've been driving and it's not working. I want you to be the boss of my life, Jesus. It's in that moment that we become dangerous because it's no longer we that live, but Christ that lives in us. I pray, Lord, that people would prepare faithfully so that when Satan wakes up in the morning, and he thinks of us and he watches how daily maybe hourly we're handing over the keys again and we're trusting you again and he thinks to himself oh man I've got to deal with this one 
because they're a danger to my plan to discourage and destroy. God, make us dangerous for your glory, not ours, and for the good of those who live around us every day. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.